The Cloister Bell podcast continues watch maintained, nothing to report, business appears to be proceeding normally, no unusual activity, everything checked and found in order, report completely negative, nothing to report so far, we'll continue to search. It's worthless, absolutely worthless. This week, Rob, the ham-fisted bun vendor and I, who doesn't want any tea today, discuss the season 8 opener and 1971 adventure, Terror of the Autons. <laughs> This cloister bell. Imminent disaster. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh no. Everyone, welcome back after that rather uh, bizarre mix of quotes from uh, today's story that we're going to be looking at. Uh, I'm joined by Rob. He's not a ham-fisted bun vendor. I just think it's one of the most oddest lines in Terror of the Autons. How are we doing, Rob? I'm good. Um, I've just recently found out that it's not bum vendor. But... Uh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> right, okay. What is it? It's bun vendor. Yeah. Oh, did yeah. I... Yeah. Does it yeah. sound like I said bum vendor? No, but I used to think it was. Alright, oh, okay. No, <laughs> Just ham-fisted bun vendor, yeah. One of the oddest insults ever. Maybe we should start using it in uh, just people who annoy us and just call them a hand-fisted bun vendor and just see them going, Yeah. What? We know. Um, everything well with you? Yeah, not bad. Um, uh, I'm not sure. We might have to cancel today's podcast. <laughs> Keeping this recording, though. Oh, right, okay. It's why a bit embarrassing, really. Um... I went to get my Terror of the Autons video, so I put it in, mm. and I thought, I'm sure this isn't the right era. And 20 minutes later, when the credits rolled, I realised I was watching, um, clearly, last time I'd watched Terror of the Autons, I must have put the wrong video in the box. Do you mean, the, so, do you mean an actual VHS? Yeah, so I'd, I'd been watching the wrong VHS for 20, 20 odd minutes, <laughs> Right. and it wasn't Terror of the Autons. Was it Spearhead from Space? Uh, it was not. It was this. Oh, good God. Right, okay. You can see where I made the mistake. <laughs> yes, I can. Actually, we um, we talked, we were texting each other about this a few days ago. We actually discovered something which would have been quite useful when we were kids. Yeah. So, what that was, uh, when we were kids growing up in the early 90s, uh, there was a series of toys called Crash Test Dummies, which were based on crash test dummies that you use for, you know, car safety. We've probably all seen the videos where they stick these dummies in and smash cars and see how safe the, the cars are. Horrific. Yeah. So, they, they made these toys for kids, which were based on that. And, you you know, you press buttons and all the limbs would pop off and all the rest of it. And uh, uh, I love the toys, and there was um, they were supposed to be quite popular. Although I didn't know any other kid who played with them. I loved them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> only found out that 
only found out when you tech when you text me um, the other day about it. Actually, it turned out that you knew who what the test uh, crash test dummies were. You yeah. played with them. Uh, you even got because there was one um, toy which was I'm, I think it was limited edition. I'm not, but it was like a special one because it it came with a VHS and the VHS ha- was obviously the thing that you watched. Yeah, and um, the VHS didn't even come in a case. <laughs> no, think. it didn't. No, no. Um, so that's probably why it ended up in the terror of the Autons. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know how you get the... Well, you'll know this. Um, so anyone who's into like football, you know how you can get like football stickers and you get the books and you put them in? Well, there was the crash test dummy version of that, which I bought and got the, the stickers. But it wasn't really fun. Because I didn't know anyone else who was collecting them, so I couldn't swap the stickers. Only found out when we were texting each other after that. Not only did you also have the same thing, you also bought them from the same shop, and you also had the same problem. Yeah. Um, we'd basically come out of class. Yeah. I'd be in the cloakroom. Have you got 30 pence for the stickers? Let's go to the shop around the corner, mm-hmm. which is where you went. You know, yeah. That's going in the same circles, but not, not realising. <laughs> Yeah, did uh, I did tell you a story? So when I got the, um, we also bought the toys from the same shop, which we discovered. Yeah. So because uh, I was telling you, oh yes, I know which video what you're talking about. I got that toy bought for me uh, in in Fennec, and you went, oh that's yeah, that's where I got mine as well. Um, <laughs> mine's attached with a bit of a harrowing story. So the the day that that uh, my mother uh, bought that for me, uh, we then went to my grandmother's and so. But obviously, I was very keen on wanting to to watch this animated uh, video of the crash test dummies. So I put it on. I was a bit confused because uh, it was a sporting event. Okay, why is hmm. this on? And it was uh, it was bullfighting. Uh, and I remember what like watching it, going well. It might be a fault with the the video. Maybe the animation will will kick in at some point. And no, that the and you know you were fast forwarding it. No, the whole thing was a video cassette of bullfighting. It was... Uh, I've never changed my mind since then. I think bullfighting is a horrific. Mm. Um, was it violent? Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was violent. And, uh, yeah, just really, really odd. I mean, you would think... How on earth did a, uh, a bullfighting... A recording of a bullfight end up on a children's VHS... Mix up at the VHS factory. Yeah, really. weird. Anyway, obviously, ended up uh, taking it back me? and getting it and getting it. What you're drinking? I've got whiskey and coke. Oh, okay. I have water. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's the the crash test dummies. Yeah, um, that replacement. Yeah. Finally, watched the animation, which wasn't as harrowing. <clears throat> yeah, it was a it was a cool movie. Only twenty odd minutes, but. Hmm. Somehow, it felt like uh, it was paced well. Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube uh, if anyone wants to watch it. Yeah. Did you realise that the link I sent you for that was an extended, uncut version and it had another scene at the beginning? No. What was the scene at the beginning? Um, About them testing the president's car? Was that not in the VHS? I think it originally just went straight to slick and spin before they did uh, the whole sidecar routine. No, I always thought that was in there. I can't oh, remember. Was it? But... Jeez, I don't know. 
and it's unresolved. Like, Junkman had the torso 9000, Ted never got his body back. <laughs> or was the legacy of that the fact that it was resolved in all the playing with the toys? Oh yeah, probably. That would that would make sense. Yeah. I just love the I... line, look at the dreadhead. Because <laughs> um, uh, so the, the plot is that um, the, the crash test dummies... Their job is obviously crash testing cars. Um, and for some reason, which is never explained, the, um, the, they they decided that they wanted to develop a incredibly uh, sophisticated crash test dummy. Um, but there was a problem. The the electronic head, it was it was all sentient and it was uh, having briefly watched it again, it was just like, oh, there's lots of Terminator references. Which obviously I didn't yeah, get as a kid. It was really good. Um, uh, but the head's evil. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the way that uh, this evil manifested itself. I mean, yeah, he I mean he kills people, but it, it is actually quite funny. I mean, when when the head's reactivated, he he kills the extremely short-sighted janitor by. I mean, the, every, all the characters are crush testimonies. Uh, he kills him by hoovering him up. Yeah, <laughs> that's one powerful Hoover. That's probably my favourite scene. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, yes. Crash test. Good times. Good times. (laughs) Uh, Been watching anything else? Um, Me and my wife have been watching, for whatever reason, we put on X-Men First Class the other day. Oh, okay, yeah. So then we went... Yesterday we watched... No, sorry. The day before we watched Days of Future Past... Then we watched Apocalypse, mm-hmm. and just before recording, we did 20 minutes of Dark Phoenix. Oh, right, okay. Still enjoying it? Um, yeah, we spent half the time debating all the all the um, kind of continuity errors. I feel like the James Bond films have got more in common than, than X-Men. I think every, every film just contradicts the rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good though. I did watch Moon Knight today, the new Marvel studio Marvel show that uh, came out today on Disney Plus. All right, okay. Pretty good. Um, you have to kind of guess what's going on at the minute, unless you go and research the comics. Uh, this new hero that that's introduced, it's not quite um, him becoming who he's going to be. It's more like he can't quite remember, and it's 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 all. I guess it's all going to get kind of pieced together. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, a brave kind of first episode, um, but it's quite good, and that's going to be on weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm watching much else though. No, I haven't been watching much else. I've been wa- well, uh, apart from uh, I'm still watching episodes of Two Point Four Children, which is an iPlayer. I've been watching episodes of One Foot in the Grave. Mm. Um, but mainly been reading. Oh, cool. Uh, in fact, um, <laughs> it's riveting stuff, people. The book that I'm reading at the moment is The Ri- the Rise and Fall of Council Housing. No, sorry, right, the full, okay. sorry, the full title. <clears throat> Municipal Dreams, The Rise and Fall of Council Housing by John Boughton. Uh, right, okay. Are the days gone now? Well, pretty much. I mean, you still have council housing, but it's... it's I mean, for, for, 
it's a little bit dry in places, uh, as you can imagine, but it's, uh, I mean, the guy knows his stuff. It's very partisan, though, I'd say that. He's a very strong Labour supporter, which is fair enough, but that really, really comes through in the writing to the point where, um, like, at the, so he covers the full history, you know, so he starts in the late 1800s, which is when, you know, there's the first throes of what would become social housing starts to emerge, and he, he follows it all the way through um and it's sort of lord salisbury was the really the first chap in the late 1800s to start you know kickstarting what we'd recognize as social housing but the problem is rob he was a tory so even though that this was oh. the first throws because he's a he was a tory it wasn't really good enough whereas the impact that william morris had through through the arts and crafts movement that's much more important apparently and you go i'm sorry but you're stretching it a bit there aren't you so it's that mm. sort of thing but it's still it's still interesting but i uh the last chapter that i read uh it, it talks about the the meadowell riots do you remember those no all right okay i do so anyway this i'll just read this paragraph the riots which devastated Meadowell and North Shields erupted on the 10th of September 1991. They followed three days of rising tension after two young men from the community had been killed when the stolen car they were driving crashed into a lamppost. Their friends disbelieved police, police denials of a hot pursuit that might have caused the crash. Protests against the police degenerated into looting and arson and emergency services attending were attacked. In all, it was said that some 400 people overwhelmingly young men were involved. 37 were arrested. Two days later, a violence spread to the Scotswood, Elswick and Benwell areas in the west end of Newcastle. I just remember that. Man. Bloody hell. I, remember, I mean, yeah, we were five at the time, but I just remember that being in the news, especially when oh, it really? spread into you know, the west end of Newcastle. And you're just seeing it on the main news. You know, you just got basically the whole of the... I'm exaggerating slightly, but it seemed like the whole of the west end was just in flames. Seen Elzik and just uh, just a lot of rides and fires going on. Ah, uh, then were the days. So um, yeah, just reading that and that reminded just <laughs> memories. Anyway, uh, talking of books, uh, I popped into Waterstones uh, the other day to to, to buy a book, mm-hmm. and uh, it turns out that Ben Aronovich is going to be paying a visit on Tuesday, the fifth of April. At one o'clock in the afternoon, went pretty typical when I'm at freaking work. A weekday, I, I know. Yeah. A weekday, it's like, oh, who arranged that? Um, so the, it would be quite nice to actually pop down and because um, it's he's been writing a series of novels for the last few years, the Rivers of London series, okay. Um, which I can't unfortunately, I haven't read yet, but I have heard incredibly positive things, and it's been. One of those series of books, which it's like been on my list of, I must get into those and give those a try. Um, anyway, he, it's a, it's an ongoing series, and I think his his latest novel in that run is is coming out. So, it looks like he's on a book signing tour, uh, and it, um, but he's been you know he wrote Remembrance of the Daleks, Battlefield, and in terms of Doctor Who, I think he's also mm. written novels, but he's also written Blake Seven stories as well. Uh, it, would, it would have been quite nice to actually write I'll get the first Rivers of London series and, and meet the chap um, but that doesn't seem likely because I'll be no. at bloody work it's annoying yeah <laughs> really yeah. is uh, oh well <laughs> shame yeah 
Hopefully the next time when the, the, <clears throat> the next book in the series comes out. Hopefully by which time. Uh, I would have actually read some, <laughs> read some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been reading anything else? Um, I'm going... Any targets? No, no, not any targets. I've, um, I want... My, um, my politics phase is, is really kicked in. I just wanted to read a whole load of just stuff in politics. So I've pulled out some... Because that's what I read at university. So I've pulled out some of my old politics books that I read at the time. I've also been reading, um... I read what, the kind, fl- what kind of books? Well, like um, oh, political philo- uh, political philosophy, and then okay. um, I read the first volume of Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. uh, which covered her early childhood up to and including uh, the victory of the Falklands, which in April, mm-hmm. uh, this April, uh, marks the fortieth anniversary of the Falklands wow. War. Yeah, um, ancient history. <laughs> Ancient, ancient history. Um, I once worked with a chap who fought in the Falklands, actually. Um, When I was a very young kid, I thought it was the Aucklands. I thought it all happened in Bishop Auckland, near us. (laughs) Oh, oh, right, I thought you meant the Auckland. Right, okay. (laughs) Wow, that would have been quite impressive for Argentina to have actually... They actually invaded uh, Bishop Auckland. Yeah, yeah. Bishop Auckland. (laughs) (laughs) All right, okay. Um... So and then, and then I read Margaret Thatcher's *The Path to Power*. Uh, mm. So I was like taking it from her, from her words of from yeah. her childhood up to the moment she just becomes prime minister. <clears throat> so I read that, and then I kind of want to cover the same period of. Um, at some point, I want to start reading about Ronald Reagan. Yeah, just cause. Oh, okay. Uh, That'd uh, be interesting. And then. Actually, the, the book that I bought at Waterstones the other day was The Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, so when was that? Was... How far back did that go? <laughs> well, it's... The um... Dawn of Man. <laughs> well, actually, it's written by Hannah Arendt, who was born in, I think, 1908. She was a German Jew um, and well-respected, well-known philosopher. But obviously, mm-hmm. she, um, she saw the rise of Nazism. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she escaped the horrors, um, and then I th- uh, by moving to France. Uh, but uh, I think at the time, you know. Th- but then that only gave us so much because the Nazis invaded uh, France. Anyway, eventually she ended up moving to America, where mm-hmm. she um, started publishing um, a lot of work. Uh, the Orange of Totalitarianism is is one of her most famous and respected. Um, you know, you know that phase. Um, oh, hang on, I've just forgotten it now. The um, the banality of evil. No. Oh, well, it's a it's a fa- it's a famous fa- f- phrase which I'm sure she coined, where she because uh, she actually went to uh, the Nuremberg trials, and oh, right. uh, it was just see you know seeing Nazi Nazis who were just seemingly normal banal people. And just how they were capable of doing, you know, absolutely atrocious acts. Yeah. Anyway, so that's uh, so that's the sort of f- phase of reading I am in at the moment. Yeah. I haven't read anything. <laughs> I can. T- I thought about picking up the the second Time Lord Victorious book to read sometime. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. It's, on the, it's on the shelf, waiting for me. Mm-hmm. After that cool cliffhanger in the first book, I really want to get around to it. <laughs> That's plenty of time. 
Yeah. I did do uh, a rose quiz on the website. Oh, yes, yes, you did. The other day. Yeah. Because we didn't do a podcast last week, and then um, I thought I should do something, and then I realised it was the anniversary of Rose, Mm -hmm. because it came out on the 26th of March, so I did a a quick quiz. Um, Did you get 9 out of 10, did you say? Yes, I did. I got uh, the the one uh, I've forgotten. The, I'd forgotten the name of the director, so that was the question that that mm, flummoxed yeah. me. But uh, I got the the rest of them right. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, yeah, it's on the website if anyone wants to check it out. And you know, let us know how you do. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed doing it. Actually, it was a it yeah. was a good set of questions. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, quizzes, mm. we've got a little feature here on the second week. Oh crap! I forgot about this. Right. Okay. It's it's time for Hoodle. Oh god! Right. Hang on. Can you get my pen and pad for this yeah i do also have a pen and paper to keep note right okay uh yes so uh <coughs> i never i've never played the actual official version of wordle uh but i don't know why you should just play it i've, I've just it's, it's, got around to it I, it's not an app it's just a website is it oh i thought it was an app all right okay yeah. anyway yeah. um but yeah during uh, the last podcast uh was the first time i played it but obviously with the doctor who connection and i it was embarrassing it was because uh, Rob explained the rules, and I, the first guess being five letters, I went Dalek, and he went no, no, but you've got you know some of the letters, a couple of the letters are right, but in the wrong place. Yes. And I went all right, okay, I need to think about this, and I, I did find it tricky, and I went, I know what it'll be, it'll be Khalid, <laughs> and then it's, and then it just oh, hang on a minute, I haven't I haven't done this right because it's just an anagram of the first word that yeah. I did, idiot. Um, <laughs> So yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'll be a bit better. If if not actually getting the word right, then at least being a bit better with my guesses. So I have mapped this out throughout the podcast. I've put it into. Um, you've got an opportunity to do six rounds. Okay. For six six guesses. Mm-hmm. So um, the first one's now. So do you have a six? Sorry, a five-letter word, but it has to be a Doctor Who word. Hang on. Is this a word I'm telling you? No, hang on. I've phrased that completely wrong. Is it you? Are you guessing this week? I'm not guessing. That'd be exciting. Um, I don't know. I had a word prepared for you. Oh no, no, no that's fine. It was just right. Okay, I was. Well, have, you, have you got a word for me? No, that's why I was just. Like, hang on. What? What? Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if you could guess a five-letter word now, you could guess a random word. You might reveal some letters. Hang on. Is this Doctor Who related or... It is Doctor Who related. It's five letters. Well, I'll start off as I did last week. Uh, I'll say Dalek. (laughs) Dalek, okay. We'll just write that in. Um, Okay. Um, The D. There is a D, but not at the beginning. Okay. There is an A... But it's not the second letter. Okay. There is no L. Mm-hmm. No E. Right. And there is no K. Right. So there's a so okay. So there's a D and an A somewhere. Yeah. You're welcome to guess any time to have another go. But um, I've kind of pasted it so we can do it throughout the podcast. Right, but okay. Feel free to jump in as soon as you can think of something. Oh, for God's sake. Bloody five-letter Doctor Who words. 
I couldn't think of any five-letter Doctor Who words other than Dalek and Khalid last week, so I don't know how... The... It's, it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be... I'm going to do crap. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Um, well, before we move on, um, I just want to say hello to some new listeners who have joined the website. Um, in case you don't know, if anyone goes to cloisterbellpodcast.com, you can make your own profile, you can unlock achievements, um, things like that. So, this week we've had Alexander, who is a law student about to graduate from university. His favourite food is pasta. His his favourite Doctor Who story is Dalek. And his favourite Doctor is Paul McGann. And he one day hopes to be a guest on the show. So, welcome, Alexander the website yeah hi Alexander and uh, congratulations on uh, graduating or about to graduate that's yes. fantastic and uh, yeah thanks very much yeah stay in touch yep um, we have Sean he's a 26 year old Doctor Who fan from Scarborough with a masters in screenwriting ah okay Sean's favourite food is pizza good man <laughs> yeah um, his favourite story is the day of the doctor Okay, and his favourite Doctor is David Tennant. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't all be perfect. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Sean. Oh, that's great. That's good. Yep. And we also have Sonia. Um, I'm a 30-something-year-old lady. Um, well, 30-something young, I'd say. Um, living in Massachusetts. Um, she loves podcasts. She loves Doctor Who and Doctor Who podcasts. That all ties up. Uh, yeah. Um, she also enjoys coffee, animals, and crafts, and she's currently catching up on Jodie Whittaker's run. She says she hasn't started the classic era yet, but she will. Her favourite food is sushi. Ah, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sushi, yeah. I, I like yo sushi. Do you ever go there? Have we been there? Yeah, yeah. We um, we went there once. We did uh, when we went to see. Oh, what was that crap film we went and watched? Oh. The Predator. Yeah, The Predator. <laughs> not Predator. No, no, no. That's not crap. That's a good film. But The Predator. Yeah. But yes. Uh, but it was it was balanced out by having a nice meal at uh, Yo Sushi. Yo <laughs> I can't yeah. say it. Anyway, yeah, that place that you mentioned. That we went there. Yeah, it's nice. It's good. Um, her favorite Doctor Who story is The Empty Child, The Doctor Dances, mm-hmm. a popular one. And her favorite Doctor is Christopher Eccleston. Oh, okay. Which is nice to hear. Like, mm. must be maybe it's her first doctor. Good choice. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, Rob, if you were to recommend, because she, she said that she hasn't started watching classic Doctor Who yet. Mm. If you were to recommend a story, <clears throat> what would it be? That's a tough one. Mm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend. You can jump in at any point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you were to start at the very beginning, um, the early Hartnell stuff doesn't represent the show as a whole um, as far as um, how the fans came to perceive it. Mm. So I'd say go for some of the the more standout stories. Go go for some of the Dalek stories, some of the Cyberman stories as a jumping on point. Mm. Some that you're familiar with maybe and then kind of branch out from there. What what would you say is a good... good I think, yeah, um... I mean, obviously, Sonia, you don't have to listen to a blind word we're saying. You could just take your pick, and it'd be fine. I think. Um, I think that's a. I think that's a sensible suggestion, Rob. Um, I think 
if if you wanted to try a, a Doctor Who story that didn't have any of you know the, the the classic monsters in it, like like the dogs and the Cybermen, basically, I would you know probably suggest um, something like maybe Terror of the Zygons or Ghostlight. I think, I think especially mm-hmm. if um, the Empty Child and the Doctor dances, I think in terms of tone, I think maybe the closest classic Doctor Who story is Ghostlight. Do you think? Yeah, um, it's a bit hit and miss with people, I think. Mm. Um, but I, I would definitely recommend that. Uh, it's a strong Sylvester McCoy performance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a good one. Um, yeah, because they're definitely worse ones to pick. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would say. I think pretty much most stories are pretty good. Personally speaking, I would say stick a, keep away from Underworld. Mm. Uh, which is a Tom Baker story it's tedious beyond belief Um, Mm. with the legend of the sea devils coming up um, I'd recommend the sea devils yeah well that's a great story it's uh, Mm. it's my favourite John Pertwee story actually yeah which we have reviewed one of mine yeah once upon a time (laughs) we should do warriors of the deep soon yeah we should shouldn't we yeah just get out of the way yeah just get the damn thing out of the way yeah um, anyway, sorry Rob, carry on. Um, that's about it. So we've got th- three new members on the website. Um, we have a system where you can go on. Um, the people I've just mentioned have all kind of unlocked some achievements on their profile. There's dedicated listener, because they're a listener of the podcast and signed up. Uh, they've unlocked the social follower icon and... They've unlocked the responder to the cause achievement because um, they responded to us through social media. Um, there's more achievements for them to unlock. We also have a system called Cloisterbell Coins that I set up recently. It's kind of still in the testing phase, but we do have a coin store on there. Um, I hope you don't mind, Liam, but for a certain amount of coins, I made our first patreon episode available to purchase there oh okay um don't have to don't have to do that for all our bonus episodes just thought uh, kind of trial it on there mm-hmm. um for the more dedicated listeners who do accumulate coins um after a certain amount they could uh also download the episode from there all right okay um just as kind of a, a little trial thing uh, for the moment mm-hmm. um yeah and there's also a, a, a thing to unlock um an option to pick a story for us to review as well. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, but, um... Well, I think it's safe for round two of Hoodle. Right. Unfortunately. Okay. Uh, yeah, the thing is, Rob, I'm really struggling to come up with any Doctor Who-related five-letter words. My mind's you... going blank. I can cut... Like, I'm coming up with six letters. Uh, TARDIS, no, oh. that's six letters. Draven, no, that's six letters. Um, you can do it. You can do it. Uh, just a generic word that's in the in the English language, if you want, and it might help. I hate this game. Um, Devil, Queen. Just reading through my notes here. Queen. That hasn't got a D in it. No, but you might. You never know, you might discover or eliminate some letters which will help with your third guess. Oh yeah, that's true. Right, 
I'll come up with something later on. Let's move on. We need to... We okay, need... yeah. <laughs> You're all bloody day. Right, so... Um, oh, Legend of the Sea Devils is coming out on the Easter Sunday. We've discovered. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Dream. I'll use that as my word. Dream? Yeah. Dream, so... I know, that, uh, I know that you said D wasn't the first letter, but... Yeah. Um... So you did dream. D's in the wrong place. There is an R, but it's in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. What do Daleks count their... Um... Oh, that's rails, isn't it? Oh, well, okay. Right, I got one, uh, got one more letter. No problem. <laughs> right. Oh, there is a synopsis for Legend of the Sea Devils out. Oh, I didn't know that. What does it say? In a swashbuckling special adventure, the Doctor, Yaz and Dan come face to face... No... They come face to fin with one of the Doctor's oldest adversaries, the Sea Devils. Why has legendary pirate queen Madame Ching come searching for a long-lost treasure? What terrifying forces lurk beneath the oceans of the 19th century? And did Yaz really have to dress up? No. Did Yaz really have to dress Dan up as a pirate? Yes. (laughs) Excited? No. I am looking. I am looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you? Yeah, be good. It's always good to have something to talk about. Mm. Anyway, uh, without further ado, um, and try not to be distracted by bloody Wordle. Um, Terror of the Autons. So. Um, the Master arrives on Earth in his TARDIS. He immediately contacts the Nestines and assists them in mounting a second invasion of Earth. The Doctor and his assistant, Joe Grant, have to tackle the Autons, the Master, and a large number of deadly daffodils. The cast and crew, I'm only naming the main players because uh, the cast is quite large. John Pertwee plays Doctor Who, Nicholas Courtney plays the Brigadier, Roger Delgado plays the Master, and Katie Manning plays Joe Grant. The story was directed and produced by Barry Letts. It was written by Robert Holmes. The music was by Dudley Simpson. And the production design was... uh, I don't know why I've included that because I didn't find out. So I'll just delete that. No problem. Moving on. So, um, cracking on with the main... It's notable for being the first story to have the master. First things Um... first, Rob. But yes, yes it is. Yeah, so first things first what? (laughs) I was going to get onto that, but uh, yeah, no, no, carry on. No, no, go on. No, no, you go on. No, no, I haven't really got notes. I'm just improvising. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm just being annoying and interrupting. <laughs> Sorry. As if Whirl wasn't enough. I'll sit, I'll sit here quietly. Sorry. Yeah. Shut up, Rob. It's a bloody podcast. What are you playing at? Um. Have you ever been to a circus, Rob? Yes, but not one with animals. Right. Okay. So, so when did when did you go? Quite often, a circus does come near mine on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have people in, they'll have like an annoying clown. They'll have people do gymnastics. Uh, people on motorbikes. Um, yeah, just just humans, <laughs> no animals. So it's an alright atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've only been to a circus once. It did have animals. Okay. Uh, I was seven or eight at the time. Didn't enjoy it. I thought it was awful. Uh, the, the clowns didn't help, but the main reason why I didn't enjoy it was because I, the, the way that the animals were tread. I just thought it was appalling. What animals? Yeah, they had uh, they had elephants and lions 
they may have had they may have had another one I can't quite remember they definitely had lions and, uh, and elephants there and I just thought that the way that they were tread I just thought it mm. was horrific I didn't understand how anyone could find it entertaining and I just mm. felt um, the way that the animals were tread was just absolutely appalling so actually yeah. that's one of the things I'm so pleased that um, circuses have completely changed Mm-hmm. to what they once were but obviously the, the reason why i mention it is because uh terror of the autons begins at a circus and we don't see any of the animals being mistreated although there is an, a slight interior shot where we're seeing some of the elef- uh, elephants being you know rounded and made to be entertained and but there's brief yeah. clips of lions and cages which isn't particularly nice but it comes it goes yeah quite a routine with the elephants yeah i mean it's uh I mean, it's I, no, I don't mean that in a good way. I'm just saying it's it's the the, the it's quite synchronized. They're doing they're all spinning around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, in and terms I thought of... was that just stock footage? But no, moments later we see John Pertwee walking past the elephants. Yeah, no, no. That all that was specially shot. Um, in fact, the the circus. Uh, I think it was the Roberts Brothers Circus. Um, mm. They they are credited at the the end of uh, the episode, and yeah, it. This it wasn't stock footage. It was all a real circus. It was all specially filmed uh, for the story and everything. And in fact, mm. um, the circus owner um, <laughs> does actually make a brief appearance. He's the one who he, he's the one who's escorting the elephants out of the circus. In fact, he was ah, right. uh, John Pert. We knew him. Uh, it was like a friend from you know years ago. So they had a good catch up when they were making you know uh, when they were filming this uh, this episode. Oh, but we begin in the circus, so, you know, it's where families are, what would have been regarded as, you know, just normal entertainment and, and light. Um, mm. And then we hear the sound of a TARDIS. But it's not the Doctor's TARDIS, it's a TARDIS <clears throat> disguised as a horse box. So it's a TARDIS which has a working chameleon circuit. And this is our introduction to the Master. Uh, this is his very first Doctor Who story, and for such a classic... Uh, villain classic adversary for the doctor uh the fact it took eight years for him to be introduced may take some people by surprise but this you know he was introduced in john pertwee's uh second season uh season eight which um has the distinction of having the master in every single story uh barry letts has subsequently said that that was a mistake uh because it removed any surprise of just going well i wonder who's going to be behind it oh look it's the master but they were really enthralled with the character and uh when he and uh terence dixer was the script editor had come up with this idea barry letts knew exactly the actor that he wanted to play the part roger roger delgado i'm very excited so they wrote him in every single story i actually think it works as as a one-off and if you actually watch uh season eight uh in that sense it's it's quite similar to you know, modern television. You know, it's it's sort of like a st- season story. Serialized. Yeah. Almost. Uh, and I think it's, it's handled really well. But this is his very first story. This is how he's introduced. Um, so he arrives in a circus. Tardis chameleon circus c- circuit works. He immediately uh, recruits someone by, by hypnotizing them. And then immediately goes to a science museum and steal, steals the, the nesting uh, unit. Um Knowing, you know, everything that we know about the, the character and how how integral he is to to the show and everything, what do you think, Rob, of uh, of this as a means of introducing us to him, to the character? We don't get um, 
enough interaction as you might hope for between the master and the doctor mm-hmm. um not enough backstory um which which is fair enough but you know you kind of you kind of analyze it th- with that foreknowledge now and you're mm. kind of looking for the chemistry between them and things like that so i think the legacy of the master that we know it now doesn't it doesn't quite marry up with what we're seeing here because of course none of that story had been written yet mm. um so I don't know. Maybe the, the series as a whole works better as an introduction, but um, just in this, the, there's there's not enough interactions or possibly um, kind of chemistry between them and this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I but know. on the whole, I mean, would you st- do, do you think it could have been better? Then I mean, do you think it works? Do you think it's okay? What you? I think it works. Um, we've kind of got a bit of a a fusion of two different villains going on. Um, I think. With it being an Auton story, did it need the master in there at all? Um, it, maybe it, it could have worked without because um, the Nestian consciousness is itself um, an intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we need the master there? Um, it does work. Was it needed? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, no. It, I mean, it's quite an understated way of introducing what actually turns out to be a very important character and was always intended to be that important. Um, so I think it can be quite surprising in that sense of the first initial moments that we see the character. But uh, this being, of course, uh, classic Doctor Who, this is a, a single story told over four episodes. So it's not a single, you know. Um, it's not a single episode. So you actually, I would say that you actually um, build up his character during the, the course of the four episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the, these initial moments are quite understated when you, when you with what we all know and expect of the character. He, he does play them. Um, he does play the character very well mm. from the go. Yeah. I mean, it, it works in the sense of he's a very commanding, authoritative quite funny character actually there is an element of charm but you know he's no nonsense and he gets the job done so within the first couple of minutes of him being on the screen we know that he's a time lord he has a TARDIS which works which is better than the uh, the doctors um, he knows what he's doing there he's able to hypnotise people and he's up to no good so th- just to get a, a ba- you know, a basic idea or flavour of him it, he immediately ticks all those boxes and then, obviously, everything else unfolds as the the story uh, progresses. But yeah, I think it's it is quite funny in knowing, as I said, what we know about the character. It's quite understated, but at the same time, I think it's quite a uh, effective way. In as I said, it ticks those boxes. Um, but this story not only introduces us to a new villain, it introduces us to a new companion, uh, Joe Grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that she's introduced is is completely different to that of the master. She and uh, in the previous season, which was John Pertwee's first, um, we had Caroline John play uh, Liz Shaw, uh, who was a very capable scientist, knew exactly where the Doctor was coming from, and was very intelligent. And she was a likable character as well. Oh yeah, I love I love that character. I thought I thought she was fantastic, but she's she's a one off in that season. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 
It, she didn't it, get a send off either. No, she didn't. Well, there was a couple of things. The um, the Barry Letts, the producer, had decided that uh, they needed a new companion. Having a companion who was too intelligent actually had a bit of a problem with providing exposition. You needed a character who wasn't on the same level as the Doctor to provide that explanation. So, wanted her written out. Um, and at the same time, I think Caroline John uh, was pregnant. Ah, okay. um, so... Th- I don't think it was handled particularly well. And effectively, Caroline John was... I mean, I think her contract had come to an end, but she was unceremoniously dumped from the series, unfortunately. Mm. So she wasn't given a, a proper send-off. No. Um, just a few lines of basically saying at the the story that she's, she's naffed off back to Oxford University and uh, has left the Doctor without an assistant. Um and and we have this complete contrast with Joe Grant. You know, the Doctor's uh, having an experiment. He's trying to get the dematerialization circuit of his TARDIS to work. Um, uh, the equipment that he he uses, uh, there's a very small explosion, a lot of smoke, and uh, Joe's quickly in there with a fire extinguisher and ruins his experiment. Um, what, what do you think of uh, Joe's introduction? It's a strange one, Um he kind of disregards. Uh, there's a, in contrast to Liz, um, you can you can tell the difference here. Mm. Yeah, she's not like an academic person, but she she's coming here. She's coming here, um, and she's been a bit kind of disregarded by the doctor a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know she's she's got a certain wit and she's determined. Um, yeah, and she's 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 not kind of put off by the Doctor at all. No, no. Um, in fact, because one of the things that I would say about Terror of the Autons, I think that the whole thing is incredibly fast-paced. Because uh, as soon as the story starts, uh, the threat's there immediately. So we've got this guy who's up to no good, and he he brings the he brings the the Autons straight in. So the Autons are already here on Earth, uh, building up mm. their factions before the Doctor even finds out that. Uh, you know the Autons are back, so by the time that the Doctor and Unit are aware that the Autons are here, um, uh, you know our heroes are on the back foot. They have to catch up. So there are there's always that sense of of trepidation. So um, and in terms of Joe, what she does is because. Um, they say, right, okay, well, where are the Autons going to be? And the Doctor says, well, try the, the plastic factories, man, for, for goodness sake, it's obvious. I went, yes. <laughs> and, and then Joe says, oh, well, I'll start making some lists of, um, of plastic factories where they could be. She does that list, but uh, she doesn't just sit there and do- she decides to start investigating them. Hmm. So she actually goes out her way to investigate these uh, plastic factories. Hmm. Lo and behold, finds the one uh, where they need to get to. Uh, but as promptly discovered, um, she you know she kind of bumbles that. She gets uh, easily spotted because she hides behind some plastic crates and knocks them down. Uh, yeah. When uh, when the master and uh, the plastic factory owner Farrell Junior is walking by, Farrell Junior is hypnotized by this point. So again, you know the master's just walked in, taken over an entire plastics factory, uh, gets uh, Farrell Junior to fire all the staff. Get some autons in to start operating the uh, the um, the plastic factory, and then start yeah. creating means of how to kill people. So it's very fast paced, and the threats there immediately. Um, 
and yeah i think as, a, as an introduction to the master it works incredibly well we know from the previous story terror uh, spearhead from space which introduced us to the autons that they can animate plastic and are incredibly deadly um this is a sequel to that so we know what the autons are capable of um and you know joe's uh she's brave um but not entirely sharp but during the course of again the episode uh, the story sorry you know her character builds up but because Mm -hmm. she's you know caught by the master is hypnotized um we then get into the first cliffhanger of it's a bomb um so a (laughs) trap has been laid uh where there's a box with unit markings and, and and joe has all these skeleton keys um and starts to to open it and the doctor immediately knows it's a bomb and then we go straight into the first cliffhanger um so yeah this you know the the, the, the story's not slow paced by any means i mean just talking about the first episode um what are your thoughts of the story well it was only what a 25 minute episode yeah yeah um there's a lot in there we're introduced to joe and you know she she has this determination and that's and she kind of goes against orders a bit mm. and and uh, that's not kind of because of the doctor it's um that's simply because of who she is so we're finding out a lot about her in those few scenes um yeah like, there's a lot in that first 20 odd minutes mm-hmm. and and like you said a, a great exciting cliffhanger <laughs> yeah and then uh which is obviously promptly resolved when we get into the second episode the doctor picks up the box and throws it out the window uh where it lands in a r- nearby river and then the bomb goes off uh mm. but it's it's effective and one of the things that i like about the 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 aftermath of that is they have to coax joe out of uh the trauma that she's undergone during that process so that you know the doctor's you know coaching her out of um the fact that she was forced to do something that she no- normally wouldn't have done and you know has to calm her down and reassure her i i, I like that it so for yeah, it was all dealt with well yeah so for all the, you know the fast-paced threat of the story you do have you know that there are still those character elements in there which uh you know is very good i mean robert holmes wrote the story he's you know uh regarded as one of the best uh writers of classic doctor who and there's a reason for that when and i think when you look at stories like terror of the autons i think it showcases that very well and i think i think the the first episode obviously establishes everything and i think it you know as i said you know it's establishing a new villain and his plans and getting all that on board introducing a new companion and i think it does it really well episode two is when you when they start kicking in the threat so the master's really in full control of the plastic factory at this point but he's got a a couple of people that he's got to deal with first um to get them out of the way um uh whilst at the same time showing uh his intelligence and what he's capable of doing so there's a there's a senior uh partner uh called mcdermott and uh he's killed by a chair uh which sounds which sounds ridiculous uh and it probably just a deflating chair yeah uh, and yeah it is so what happens is he's um that they've made a, a a plastic inflatable chair uh, which McDermott sits on and what ends up happening he's then stuck to the chair and then the chair uh, collapses in and around him smothers him and then he's suffocated to death 
Hmm. Um, now, death by plastic inflatable chair does sound ridiculous. The manner in which it's executed, though, no pun intended, is, um, I think, incredibly effective. Um, you know, the fact that he's stuck to the chair but is incapable of getting out of it and he's struggling. Um, we actually see the chair smother his face and we actually see the character stop breathing. And the camera holds on that yeah. for quite a while just to show, you know, this man is no longer breathing. He's now dead. Um, you know, the Terror of the Autons is, a th- you know, terror. It's I think is a very apt title of the story. And, I, I'm, you know, there's a lot of death, uh, particularly in this second episode. I mean, what do you think of of death by plastic chair, Rob? It sounds ridiculous. It it almost looks a bit ridiculous, mm. but um, it doesn't it doesn't come across as ridiculous as a wheelie bin. No, that yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. In fact, because although we enjoyed uh, Rose as an episode, one of the things I said is just that you know it's a bit of a shame when you've got something like the Autons and you know the the you know the um, the potential of doing something really atmospheric and and creepy with them. And in that yeah. sense, Terror of the Autons is that, in my view. Um, this is the way to do them. Having said that, though, I mean, when this was first broadcast in 71, I mean, I still think now this is still strong stuff. 1971, yeah. of course, I mean, it 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 received a lot of complaints. It even got spoken about in the House of Lords. It was part of a debate about what, you know, and it, a lot of people were saying, what on earth is going to Doctor Who? It's, it, it's going too far. Um, particularly with what happens later on in the, the episode. So... Uh, Mr. Farrell Sr. Uh, isn't happy with what his son's doing um, with uh, the plastic factory which he had set up. Uh, meets the master, uh, really doesn't like him. The master is incapable of hypnotizing him because that's the thing as well which is established in the first episode. Yes, the master is able to hypnotize people but some people are strong enough to, to resist so not everyone is you know, uh, susceptible. Um, so the fact that the master is incapable of um, hypnotizing Mr. Farrell uh, you know makes you know makes these jokes about how he's you know dangerously strong and then he walks out the room and he just go yeah you're going to bump him up he almost backhands him yes he did yeah actually I've forgotten about that yes you're right and even though Farrell Jr. is hypnotized even he steps in to tell him you know don't strike my father yeah. And, then, and then the master composes himself, uh, and then go yeah. So yes, I've forgotten about that. That isn't yeah. That's an important moment. So you know he's uh, potentially this man's in potentially very violent as well, mm-hmm. um, and he presents uh, Farrell Senior with uh, with the most repulsive doll. Yeah, um, which Robert Holmes was inspired by. I think they, are they called gonks? I don't know. They were the they were popular for for reasons I. I still don't understand, but they were popular. I think they were popular in the late sixties, early seventies, and they regained popularity when we were growing up. Rob, those small plastic trolls with the incredibly uh, colourful hair. All right. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Robert Holmes was inspired by those because he thought they were absolutely hideous, and that's what inspired him to have this plastic oh. doll in this uh, this ugly. Uh, killer doll in this episode and yeah i totally agree with him i think those bloody troll things are hideous and this doll is is activated by heat 
Yeah, he turns the heating up. Yeah, he turns the he turns the, the heating up in the car, and we start to see it move. But then that happens to me sometimes. Um, my youngest daughter, she'll be playing with the heating in the car, mm. and I, and I don't know that she's changed it, so I'll be driving along on a sunny day. <laughs> right. Yeah. With the with the fans blasting, waiting to get cooled down, and it'll be a while before I realise it's on hot. <laughs> She's trying to kill you, Rob. Yeah. Um. And then, uh, when he's at home, uh, the doll comes to life and strangles him to death. Yeah. And um. That's pretty creepy. Yeah, it is, and the, you know, and um. You know, at this point, we've established that, you know, Mr. Farrell, you know, he's uh, he's still happily married. You know, he's got a family. His, you know, his he gets on incredibly well with his wife. She goes into the kitchen to make the coffee, comes out to see her, you know, her husband dead, screams mm. her head off. And then we cut to the next scene. It's, I mean, this is one of those occasions I, you would, you definitely wouldn't get this in, I think, in modern Doctor Who, would you? Probably, well, no, maybe not so much. No. Not to this extent. No, not, you know. Um, and in fact, later on, I think it's in the f- third episode, but, you know, um, you know, the Doctor and Joe are investigating and they uh, they go to question Mrs. Farrell and she's still in mourning um, and, st- you know, still dealing with her grief. Which get, By get, the end of the scene, she's kind of all right. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I don't think that's inconsistent. I mean... W- uh, unfortunately, you know we've experienced brief. You you come in and out of it, I think. Yeah. So I, th- I think the way that that was written and performed, I think, was was believable. Yeah, because gr- grief isn't a performance. You don't have to like put on a sad face constantly. No. And no. you know, and she's amused by this idea that the doll, because she hasn't seen it move, but she was aware that you know t- she'd put it in one place, and the next time she's seen it, it was underneath the curtains, and then she finds the idea amusing as if it was trying to get out. So you know, so I, th- I like all that how that plays, and I think again it's it's some nice character moments. Going back to the death by killer chair, um, oh, yeah. um, there's a, there's a was it was inflatable furniture much of a thing back then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was because it, it came back uh, in the late nineties with us. You know, when, do you remember when there was a sort of like a sixties revival thing going on, and then yeah. going a bit into the seventies, and you had inflatable. Uh, furniture that suddenly became quite the thing uh, for, for again for reasons I don't, I don't know why um, but yeah it, it was a thing at the in in the uh, the early 70s so it ties in but there's a there's a moment when um the, the master's talking to to farrell jr and says that um it wasn't you know even though it killed it was successful in killing mcdermott it wasn't really effective uh, and Farrell Jr. is like, well, I don't know, seemed seem to work to me. And then the master says, no, but I can have the same effect of something which is just a, f- you know, just a few inches, a lot less plastic than this. Yeah. Just that line gets us. To, I'm 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 going to build up to it. I'm not going to go straight into it, but that gets us into the final episode of what the the master's final plan is. But that one line, you know, uh, leads us into that. Which I just think's nice. Going back to the second episode, though, so not only have we had Death by Killer Chair, <laughs> Death by Killer Doll, um, we now have another death. Um, 
So the the master had to take over a, a radio uh, research station in the first episode in order to get the the Nestine's uh, consciousness basically downloaded into the Nestine unit and then get the Nestines up and running again. And by doing that, he uh, he had to hypnotize one of the staff and then kill one of the other members of staff with what we would now call the tissue compression eliminator. Um, but the chap he he hypnotizes is Professor Phillips. And he pops up again in, in the second episode, um, trying to kill uh, the Doctor and Joe on the Master's behest uh, with a grenade. But the Doctor's manages to get through to him and Professor Phillips runs out, but unfortunately he gets killed by the grenade. Yeah, his, his hands dripping with blood with the TARDIS key. Yeah. So again, I mean, that's quite, you know, the, the, that that's a very powerful image. You've got... Uh, you're seeing uh, John Pertwee's and Katie Manning's uh, reaction to his death, and you know we have that brief shot of going. It, it's clearly not a pleasant thing to look at, and the little that we do see is yeah, his hands covered in blood, and yeah. he's got the TARDIS key in it. So it's it's a very violent death. Yeah, and also like you said, that that guy was inside the lunchbox mm. uh, at the time. It was it wasn't really explained. I don't think. No, I think because um, it's just a random thing. They wait. <laughs> Why is that guy in his lunchbox? <laughs> That's all right. I found him. <laughs> yeah, but you know the master's able to to kill people in all these different ways. One of them is by shrinking people. Mm. I mean, again, that's creepy. I mean, everything that they could possibly make this character do, he he does. Uh, <laughs> just like you know, you name it. Just like, my God, this man's bad. Uh, no wonder he's a fantastic uh, villain, uh, very well established. So. That's the um, the third death in the episode. And then we build up to, I think, which is one of the best cliffhangers in Doctor Who ever. So um, the the Doctor and Joe are set about by the circus folk and about to be beaten up, but seem to be um, saved by the police who promptly arrive. Um, the Doctor does get a bit beaten up. Yeah, yeah, he does actually, yeah. Um, uh, but they think they've been saved by the police. Uh, but they haven't. The police seem to be driving them to some sort of quarry. And just the way that... Um, I love the way that this whole scene is is performed and directed. Just, um, you know, the Doctor seems to be... Because fo- he's stolen um, the dematerialization circuit from the Master's TARDIS, so he's focused on that. Joe's kind of going, what's going on? We seem to be taken to some sort of quarry. And, the mar- and then the Doctor kind of clocks it and goes, yeah, something's something's not right. Then he asks to see um, the the policeman's warrant card, uh, his identifica- identification card, basically. Uh, and the policeman turns around and the doctor just leans forward and then peels off the policeman's face, re- revealing this blank plastic face. Yeah, best part. Oh, it's... Ap- I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's... Uh, I remember the first time that I saw that as a kid and I, I still think it's a brilliant image and just an absolutely brilliant cliffhanger. And, um, you know, again, Terror the Autons received complaints in this case from the police because, you know, it's sort of like, you know, because it was just, we're trying to make uh, children think it's perfect, you know, th- to, to find their, their local police approachable. This story isn't helping, but we all know the police are crap. Police are dummies, as this story proves. So uh, <laughs> who cares? It's just it's just an absolutely great, great moment. I love it. Um, I think it's one of the best cliffhangers of Doctor Who ever. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Um, 
it's one of those where it's i mean i don't know how they would have done it but i just it would it's kind of one of those moments where i wish the the moment was prolonged somehow i don't know how but it's just because i like i like the 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 tone the feel and the look of that whole moment i just think it's it's just a yeah moment. perhaps if it hadn't been in the car they could have made it a bit longer mm. but yeah um but then that takes us straight into the third episode um with uh you know the, the doctor um forcing them to uh forcing the, the the autons to like quickly stop the car and they would basically have to run out to save themselves mm. um the brigadier and captain mike yates another character who's introduced in the story actually which i forgot to mention um promptly arrive to to save the moment but not after a, a bit of a um bit of a gun battle going on which is uh, which is nice and exciting we also have one of the best stunts ever um Stuart fell play uh, who was the stuntman and a great name for a stuntman Stuart fell um <laughs> uh, he played uh one of the auton uh policemen and Mike Yates goes to you know because it's it's oh was this a real stunt yeah Oh, they didn't just throw a mannequin. No, no, that was that was a real stunt. Um, Stuart fell because th- they were going to um, work their way around the stunt in a different way. But Stuart fell uh, persuaded Barry Letts that he could do it, and he was immensely proud of this stunt, and I think rightly so. So um, it's established in this this fight sequence that the bullets can't stop the Autons. And hearing this, Mikey quickly dives into his car, and then. R- runs over the auton the auton then because this isn't a quarry then promptly falls down i mean it's a huge drop uh yeah you know rolls and falls down to to the, the... i thought it looked like a person unlike the um the fake cyberman from invasion that gets thrown <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is very sort of like dummy like or i don't know whether you, you know um have you ever seen delta and the bannerman yeah you know the uh, the fight sequence at the beginning where there's so there's uh, there's dead uh, bodies and they're being blown up, but they're clearly they're clearly just really f- <laughs> floppy mannequins. Oh yeah. Oh, like when um, Toberman in Tomb of the Cybermen, he, he goes off screen and then brings back a different cyber controller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's flapping around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. No, no, this was a real stunt, uh, and I think it shows. Mm. And I love how. Um, <clears throat> You know, you it's a it's 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 a fantastic drop. So he falls all the way down, and without missing a beat, the Auton then starts to immediately slowly start climbing up. Um, I think some people have said, and this includes the the people made in uh, involved in making the story, that what would have been more effective was had the Auton fell at the bottom, pause for a moment as if it was dead, and then it slowly started coming up again. I went, no, that's too obvious. And actually, I think doing it in this way, where it's fallen all the way down and then immediately starts climbing up, actually shows how how determined and how difficult they are to uh, to stop. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, not only is it a brilliant stunt, but I also think it effectively shows you how, um, how difficult the Autons are to beat. Yeah. Um, and of course, then the Master is, is told... Um, that the the doctor has managed to escape this attempt of killing him and i mean it's a wonderful fudge in some respects but i do love the master's reaction of just going that you know he's basically he's not disappointed he kind of suspected it and he was what he's kind of hoping it because 
he's in, he's actually enjoying he's in, he's kind of relishing in all this and he just goes uh, and the moment when I do manage to kill him it'll just make it all the more satisfying I mean it's a fudge but it works and I just think you know it, it does help the, the character um, one thing we also learn about the the master in this this ep- uh, in this episode is he's uh, he's able to be a, a wonderful master of disguise yeah um, is it coming to the point where we can talk about the Blu-ray effects? Yes, I think so. Okay, so I haven't seen the actual Blu-ray, but I've seen the scenes that we're talking about um, on YouTube. There's a side-by-side comparison. Right, okay. Um, there's the doll, which is a, one of the main ones. Mm-hmm. Um it kind of still looks photorealistic, but it's kind of redone. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was done well? I think or it was done. Did, did it need to be done? Yes and no. So when the story was first made, this is the first Doctor Who story which used colour separation overlay or the blue screen effect. Mm. Uh, for t- it had been used in films before, but in terms of television, this was you know in its its infancy. Barry Letts, you know, was really pushed forward the technology of this. Um. And there's some, there's some. It's not awful, but it's noticeable. It is noticeable. Yeah, I would say that it's not awful, but it is noticeable. I also would say it's overused, like mm. that guy's wife in her own kitchen, but it gets against blue screen. Yeah, like why, why? Yeah, why? Like for example, <laughs> when when you've got the shots at the top of the radio telescope, that you know, and you've got the the CSO of of the the sky, you go, yeah, that that's a practical reason. You know, that's I can totally understand why they would use that. But to have it as a background of a, a kitchen, just a, just a set, yes, a kitchen, <laughs> um, and and it is really noticeable. It's like you're not really standing in a kitchen, are you? It's just, it's just, it looks weird. So it is, it is noticeable. Um, have those kind of shots been improved for the Blu-ray? Yes. Um, and I think, funny enough, because when I rewatched the story uh, for this podcast, uh, I didn't. I watched it with the original effects. Okay. And um, maybe it's because I'm familiar with, with how the story looks. Um, possibly. But I really wasn't bothered by them. I was still able just to fully engross myself in the story and enjoy it. Um, but when I have watched in the past that the story with the updated uh, effects, uh, I think they were reasonably well done. Well, actually, very well done, actually. Yeah. Um, there's one that I quite liked. It was very subtle, but one where Roger Delgado takes his mask off, mm. um, and on the new version, they've kind of merged his eye with the mask rather than him having eye holes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very subtle, but I thought it was a good one. Yeah. It's actually it's one of those things of just going the, the the love and the attention of detail that goes into these Blu-ray releases. I just think's uh, really impressive, and that's a very good example actually. Um, and it does it just allows you to because one of the things that I really like about this approach is that they're not distracting. That these effects are there to just sell the story more. It's not there to completely change the look of of the story. It's just to uh, no. allow you to not be distracted by 
buy these effects or, or makeup or masks or whatever and just, you know, just sell it a little bit more so you're not taken out of the viewing experience. And yeah, I think that's it's... right. There is possibly one exception at the end. Yes, I agree with that. But we'll 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 get on to that uh, later if if you don't mind. Well, we can yeah, talk yeah. about it now if you wish. No, no, no. That's why I was just subtly mentioning yeah, it yeah. now. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think we're going to be in agreement with uh, with that. But we'll we'll get on to that. Um, but yes, I th- I do think uh, the for the most part the special effects the updated special effects do work incredibly well, and I like the approach that the makers of the Blu-ray box sets are doing with with uh, with them. Um, so the the master has disguised himself as a as a telephone engineer, uh, with the sole purpose of strangling the doctor by a telephone code at the end of the episode. That was a good one. That was reminiscent of the time um, in Speared from Space, when he gets the tentacles wrapped around him, mm-hmm. and he's acting a bit. Um, yeah, he, he's. He, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, John Pertwee gurns his face for all it's worth. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a return of that with the the telephone cord wrapping around him. Um, it's one of those things where you you know how it was done. It was done and it was it was filmed with um, the telephone cord wrapped around him, then unwound, and then they play that in reverse, so it looks like it's you know. So it's it's a simple effect, but done incredibly well. It's yeah. um, it's one of those things where it's horrific, but also comedic at the same time. I think because yeah. of John Pertwee's performance. Yeah, I, I've. And it's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, it's perfectly fine. Um, but all that, you know, all that sort of like that face pulling and all the sounds that he's making as it's going on, it's, I can't take it wholly seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it it still works. Um, but it's 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 also comedically dealt with. You know, in the in when we go into the final episode, um, you know, the the master. Uh, sorry, uh, the brigadier pulls the telephone cord and says, I'm afraid I broke your connection. And it's just not very amusing. Um, you know, so it's, it's dealt with it in that way. But we're really starting to um, ramp up the, the tension. And it's actually in this episode where we realise that that line th- that the master had in the second episode saying that, you know, he's able to, to kill people through suffocation in a much more easier, sorry, in a much more effective way. Um, we see what is meant by that. So, what ended up happening is that these strange, these figures in strange carnival masks, have been delivering um, as part of a promotional tour free plastic daffodils to the British populace. Yeah, they're all out now. Not not the people, the uh, the daffodils. I was going to take a picture and WhatsApp them to you today. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what with them being spring and just like walking around with uh, daffodils all over the place, which are lovely, lovely flowers. But, you know, this uh, this story has uh, has caused certain links with the flowers. <laughs> so every time yes. you see a daffodil, it's there somewhere in the back of your mind just going, terror of the autons. Um, and how this is done, I think, again, it's it's really scary and effective. So the, the Doctor has a piece of equipment... Uh, where he's able to break down the molecular structure of of these plastic flowers, and he realizes that something's been programmed into it, and it appears to be uh, part of a face and uh, part of a face. It's a, a nose and a mouth. What does it mean? And uh, I'll break this down into how I think this scene works effectively well, because I just think it's one of those moments where just everything just makes it work really, really well. Um, the the mar- uh, the doctor then t- 
tells Joe to on get uh, the brigadier on the radio to to provide some sort of update, and so Joe's using the the radio, and then the daffodil is activated, starts moving around. Yeah, and then the doctor realizes that the, the master's plan is to activate these daffodils through a massive uh, radio signal. So the master's going to be using the the radio telescope that he gained control of in the first episode as a means to uh, bring his plans to fruition. Um, Joe's intrigued by the moving daffodil, and then it squirts a sheet of plastic over her face completely sealing her nose and mouth and starts to suffocate her to death. It's a really horrific scene and done really well. And it you know, and the the immediacy that the actors give that moment, um, you know, really, really sells it. And it, you know, the, it feels like, you know, the doctor has managed to save Joe's life in the nick of time. He manages Yeah, what does he what does he do? Like spray some W D forty in their face? <laughs> That's to, that to fixes everything. It does, yeah. But he manages to spray something which uh, breaks the seal, so he's able to to mm. remove the plastic and, film. And this was what was foreshadowed with the nose and mouth. Yes. Mm. Um. And then, um, so the doctor, because at this point, uh, it's also been revealed that people have already died in mysterious circumstances. Yeah. And the doctor realizes that this is what killed them. But why wasn't the plastic film? discovered on the bodies and then it's realized that actually what ends up happening afterwards is that the it, it the plastic evaporates from carbon dioxide carbon from dioxide but yeah there's no cause of death mm. seemingly yeah yeah and why i think this this whole scene works it's not only the, the the idea of it but i love that the use of sound um for most of the part you know when that scene starts all we can hear is the sound of the doctor's equipment which is this sort of like electronic uh beeping sort of noise um mm. but i think it's a really good use of sound design uh i really like that sound and that's all that you hear and then and then when the the daffodil starts to to move that's when the music starts to to come in so th- the use of the sound the use of the music the the overall idea how the idea is executed and john pertwee's and katie manning's performance of the scene i think really really works and uh um and now we know what the master's all about and finally, we manage to have a scene between the Doctor and the Master. This is in the, in the lab? Yes. Um, what do you think of this scene? Uh, it's been a long time coming um, <laughs> in this th- four-parter. Um, the Master does say something along the lines of having had other adversaries who are kind of gone now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't imply that there's um, that much between him and the Doctor as much as we would come to know, like I mentioned earlier. But uh, what yeah, what else happens in this scene? Well, just 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 because it's it's mentioned in the first episode because the Time Lord <laughs> pops into midair um, to inform the yeah. Doctor that you know the, the Master's around just to let him know. And it is just, a stab- can I just ask how was that scene handled with the Blu-ray? Oh, that that works. Uh, that works a lot more better. I mean, for one thing, you've got you haven't got the the yellow fringing around the actor, and you know. Yeah. It, it... But does the the background scenery stay still, and he just whooshes forward? <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't. I can't. Rem- I'm trying to figure. My brain's trying to figure out what's going on. I can't remember fully because it has been a while since I've watched the updated effects. Um, but I remember from from what I from what I vaguely remember, I do think it, it does look a bit better. 
Yeah. I still think the original way is effective, but um, but yeah, I do th- I do think it is better. Um, and anyway, d- during that scene, it's it's established that the the Doctor and the Master have have met previously, so there is a little bit of a history that we're not privy t- privy to at this point. Um, and the scene when the yeah, so in that scene, um, the the Master explains his plan which is that um he's already uh delivered 400,000 of these plastic daffodils so when 400,000 I, th- I think that's the figure I can't quite remember but when 400,000 people that's right, yeah. uh drop dead um there would be panic and confusion because you know death's always uh you know more shocking when it strikes invisibly um and in the panic the nestings will will land will land their main invasion force so all this is just you know the preliminary stages of a massive invasion so that's what that's what is discussed and i like the the interaction between these two between these two characters yes and um this is when the doctor mentions the circuit is that right yes uh, what's interesting is that the uh it's very clear that the master is just right right bye doctor i'm just i'm gonna kill you now he's just gonna do it but is interrupted when when joe walks back into the room the doctor then uses that distraction to quickly grab the master's well seemingly the master's dematerialization circuit um and says well if you kill me then you'll destroy your only means of escape because uh, i've <laughs> look what i've nicked um and it's during that conversation that 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 joe actually mentions the fact that uh they're going to bomb the quarry because at that that's where um these the main autons are at the moment yeah do you think um it was best that she didn't mention that um in the grand scheme of things yes because then you know the, the autons would have been blown up and that would have been it but hmm. more than likely the doctor and Joe would have been killed by the master as a result of that. So f- to have an ongoing series, I think it's it's good. <laughs> Joe opened her <laughs> mouth. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, we get the the mind of evil in the rest of season eight, at least uh, yeah. fo- following that. So, yeah. Um, when you compare the master and Joe, um, we have the Doctor who is kind of frustrated because um, Joe isn't kind of an intellectual equal. Mm-hmm. And then we have him kind of excited that the master is. In fact, we have he's probably a bit envious of him because the master um, supposedly did better at him. Mm-hmm. It, was it this at school? Or the, the the academy? It's implied somehow. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, the academy. Um, so yeah, we can see kind of why the doctor kind of gets off on this. Like he's. Uh, yeah, he, he likes playing off of the master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, little glimpses already. Yeah. So then the the master uses the uh, the Doctor and Joe as hostages to stop this major airstrike, um, and then they pop off over to the radio telescope again to then bring in the um, 
the the big nesting and then start getting oh, yeah. the main uh, invasion going and then yeah. so the the end of the story ends up on this this battle so you know things are really building and it's exciting it's thrilling we've got action we've got explosions we've got uh, autons doing backflips as the explosion goes off uh you know unit soldiers uh, putting up the good fight some of them dying so it's it's like it's big um it's quite a big action adventure uh, yeah, mind. we got to see again how dangerous the master is because he throws somebody off the radio telescope. Yeah, there's a there's a technician but, coming down as he's going up, and he just karate chops him around the neck and pushes him down, and then he falls to his death. Another. Great and then stunt. doesn't the brigadier say something like, "Go and get a stretcher"? Um, no, I think I think that's. Oh, I'm not sure. Is that not the end when they uh, when they kill Farrell Junior, oh, thinking it's the master? Doesn't he got say, yeah, "I'll find it"? Yeah. I'll no, I'm I, sure it's before the before the claim that the ladders. I think you're right. Actually, yeah, I'm getting mixed up with another moment. And I'm no. thinking, oh, he's dead. Just leave him. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just leave a dead body there. But I know sure. priorities because you know you you got to yeah. stop the master and then save the world first, clean up second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You got to get priorities yeah. right. Um, And then, you know, the, the doctor points out at the master, you know, when the autons are here, do you think that thing's going to tell the difference between you and me? And it's like, the master's like, oh shit, yeah, I never thought of that. Oops. And, and then uh, helps the doctor by jettisoning the nesting consciousness. And that didn't take much. I know it took all this time to get there, mm. but he did quickly come to his senses, like, pretty quick after all that, after all this effort. Mm. Uh, Terrence Sticks, I think, has always said that he, he did find that uh, ending... Um, he didn't find it particularly satisfactory. So when it came to the target novelization, um, maybe I should have bought that and, and maybe uh, and read it. But uh, apparently, so, so when it came to him writing the uh, target novelization, uh, he he'd written a better end. Um, I wish I knew what that ending was now. So. And actually, because this is a good point. So, was this the it was this the moment when you were going to mention the updated special effect? Yeah, because above the radio telescope, we have the the nesting appear in his, in its kind of octopus form, uh, or rather, it does in the updated version. Because originally, I believe it was intended to look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, um, because of the limitations, we just got. A vague um, kind of white haze of a shape, mm-hmm. um, which was fine, but uh, they went for a CGI option which looked practical, I think. Um, do you think it was needed? It's always good when they kind of visit concepts that couldn't be pulled off at the time. But, but yeah, that's the one exception in this story, like a, 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 a drastic change. Yeah, I mean, I can see the the logic of it, which is that, um, as we know from Spearhead from Space, the main nesting consciousness is in the, you know, does sort of resemble an octopus. In fact, it's even said in Terror of the Autons, you know, it resembles a cephalopod. To which Joe Grant says, what's a cephalopod? And the doctor goes, an octopus. I thought you said it, you took an A-level in science. And she says, I didn't say I passed. Um, so that's another nice little fun character moment between them. Mm-hmm. So be, so we've had that line in Terror of the Autons, but because we've seen you know tentacles visually in Spearhead from Space, the idea that it would look like an octopus, I can see why they would update the special effect and how it's done, I think is done very effectively. Um, 
truth be told though i as basic as as it is i do like the original elect- electronic effect you know where it it sort of resembles like you know you can kind of see a sort of shape but it's a bit it's a bit more nebulous and because it's just starting to come through through the use of the radio telescope i kind of like the fact that it's it doesn't appear as clear i think it makes more sense yeah and then it dissipates it, as it, as you know as as it's flung into space mhm yeah i mean i like both effects but uh, yeah. i yeah and and i also like you said how the new version has a bit of continuity with spearhead mhm um but yeah, I think I do. the The original was fine. Mm-hmm. So, what are we left with after this? Uh, well, a brief scene uh, where it's established that the master has managed to escape. We knew he escaped because actually he he manages to bring round Farrell Junior again, hypnotize him. And the doctor knew something was going to happen. Yeah, and they end up shooting Farrell Junior, so he's dead. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the master escapes, uh, and then we 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 end with. I mean, it could be argued that the doctor's a bit callous, given everything that, everything that's gone on in the story, but we end on the fact that the the doctor's looking forward to his uh, to his next encounter with the master. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, which I actually think is yeah. I'll, I'll, actually, hang on, wait a second. Where is it? Um, so I've got. Um, I think this is mentioned on the the production subtitles for the story, but I've, uh, but it's also mentioned here. So I've got Doctor Who: The Handbook for the Third Doctor, and I just need to find the section on Terror of the Autons. Oh, right. Hang on. Originally, right. The last line of the story was changed on the suggestion of BBC head of serials Ronnie Marsh from. Until I destroy him or until he destroys me. To, as a matter of fact, Joe, I'm quite looking forward to it. Marsh felt the original line to be too stark and explicit. Uh, um, So so ending that, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Joe, I'm quite looking forward to it. um, Wasn't the original line. And... As the original line was, until I destroy him or until he destroys me, I, I'm pleased Ronnie Marsh made that suggestion because I do, I do much prefer... I've always liked the ending of the story, but knowing that there was a potential that it could be something else, I think, I think what they went with is better. Yeah. But yeah, that's more in line with um, kind of establishing the, the friendship between them, mm-hmm. the rivalry. Yeah. yeah. They kind of both relish in it, yeah. <laughs> So before we um, sum up, well, actually, is there is there anything else about the story that you would like to? No, I did make I made a few notes, but we've covered them. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. Um, so we uh, we'll go on to listeners' responses, but uh, before then, just some social uh, media information. Oh, I thought you were going to say before then it's Hoodle. Oh crap! I forgot about. Oh, I forgot about that. Uh, right, yeah, you you've got four more rounds to get through. Oh. Jesus. God. <laughs> anyway, socials. This doesn't work, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this will be the last ever week of Hoodle? Possibly. We'll see. Um, right. So, um, just our social media information first. So, first of all, uh, we have our own website, cloisterbellpodcast.com. There you can listen to our 
uh, podcast. There's links. Rob provided a lot of information of like uh, some fun stuff that we've uh, included in there. There's uh, there's games and everything. So check those out. We're on Instagram at cloister underscore bell. But uh, in terms of contacting us, the the best place is, is Twitter at podcast bell. Uh, please get in contact with us. Um, just in general, what you think about Doctor Who stories, feedback, suggestions, etc., etc. Um, uh, but before I go to the listeners' responses, um, oh no, hang on, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of this word. I am really struggling with five-letter words. I keep on coming with six. Oh. Is it radium? <laughs> Not that's not that's exclusively Doctor Who, but hmm. I dare say it's been mentioned. Um, you know, I was thinking with the fact that I've got. Do you want a hint? Yeah, go on. It's a character. Of course, it's glaringly obvious. Friggin' hell! How could you possibly forget Adric? Oh, you got it in three. That's not bad. I didn't. Mean, I didn't need a massive bloody clue though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Right, okay. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Put me out of my misery. Um, okay. So we've had a, a couple of responses for Terror of the Autons. Yeah. Had three, actually. Have you got all three? Um, maybe. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, so, first of all, uh, Jake got in contact and said, even more required viewing than Spearhead, not only because of its debut characters, but because it's a much more fun story overall and quite tightly written. The only thing that throws me off is the video quality, which seems much lower even for Pertwee era who, not sure why that is. Um, I think there's a couple of things uh, with that last mm. point. I think that's down to the f- two things. One is um, the, the use of uh, CSO, special effects which we talked about before it was the very first Doctor Who story to use that it was very much in its infancy so the, the image quality of, of that isn't going to be great Yeah, it's noticeable but it's not awful no no I agree with that it's completely excusable yeah. uh, the other thing is the fact that uh, the original colour version of Terror of the Autons no longer exists mm-hmm. uh, originally uh, when it was released on uh, VHS what they did was they had the the black and white um, transmission of it but there was a there was a poor um, American colour version of it and they merged the two together to, to get as close as possible to colour okay. um, I think is that, the blue is the Blu-ray um, much of an enhancement with the colour I think so yeah and I think they, they've also used the um, I think they also used the um, what you call Power of the Daleks technique yes where they've uh, where they re- they've actually been able to recover the the, the, the color uh, information from the black and white image because uh, to uh, to get the the black and white all what they did was they they sh- they filmed uh, they just pointed a ca- uh, pointed a camera at a monitor which was showing the color but fil- uh, but the film was black and white but because of the the dots of filming in color they were able to yeah. extract the extract the, the that's color amazing yeah. yeah yeah amazing. Um, so because of that, because it's not the original colour, I, d- I think that's probably the reason why it's, it's not as you know as sharp as the rest of the, the John Perry era. But um, mm-hmm. but I do think it is... Yeah, but uh, I agree with you. I think the, the overall... Because even though I like Spearhead from Space, uh, I much prefer episodes three and four of that story because I think there's this comedic element in the first two episodes which is a bit overplayed. So tonally, it's not as consistent. 
I, um, so totally, yeah. So uh, thanks, Jake, for for getting in contact. Yeah. And also, um, Jake did ask. Um, I did offer to notify him whenever we're asking for listener feedback. Um, so I'll do that every week. But if anyone else wants to be notified, um, just let us know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll put you on the list. And yes, uh, Jacob Dinkle uh, got in contact. And... Oh, of uh, Married to Who podcast. Oh, I've, uh, I haven't seen that. Do you want to read no, that? No, that, 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 that's, that's Jacob. Oh, yes, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, sorry, yes. Um, uh, he said, maybe a bit of a lame way to bring back the Autons, but they have some amazing moments. Pulling the face off the police officer is terrifying. Joe Grant gets a great introduction. She's tough and clever while being adorably goofy. But this is all yeah. about Delgado. Delgado's intro as the master is perfect. If you get a chance, watch the Behind the Sofa segment on the season 8 box set. Is this Blu-ray? Yeah. Yeah, Sasha okay. Dewan watches Delgado's Master for the first time and is blown away. It's really cool to see. Yes, you're right. That That is really cool to see. Because um, I think Sasha Dewan made a point when he didn't want to see any of his predecessors when he was preparing and filming the role, which is understandable. Ah, right, okay. Um, so yeah, he from behind the sofa, he watches Roger Delgado for the first time and he is really impressed with his performance, It's lovely, to, which is lovely to see. Uh, so yeah, I would recommend uh, Behind the Sofa as well. Ah. That's cool. Uh, and then I can't see the third response. Have you got it, Rob? Um, yes, we had Alexander, who had signed up to the website earlier. Um, he said, oh, a truly masterful performance as it features our very familiar adversary of the Doctor. This also had the infamous quarry car accident for the poor Orson actor. Um... I thought you might enlighten me on that. But perhaps I know that when they filmed that, um, Katie Manning had an accident. She actually, this was the third day of filming on the story and she ended up uh, spreading her ankle quite badly and uh, had to... She did say that on screen. Yeah, you see that on screen the very moment when she seriously damages her ankle. Uh, so I had to be taken to hospital. Uh, I know that happened. I wasn't aware of... Mm. There was another stunt, actually. Um, it was the plastic van at the end, and the doctor dives out while it's driving off mm-hmm. um, and kind of rolls on the grass. So that was probably another stunt by um, somebody. Uh, yes, I think I know who it was, but his name... Uh, he was the, the stuntman, for, obviously, during the pit we were in the Tom Baker era. Um, mm-hmm. What was his name? Terry Walsh? I think it may have been okay. him who did that stunt. Yeah. Um, so thanks everyone for, for getting in contact uh, we do we do enjoy them um, so as I said uh, Twitter is probably the best place to get in contact with us our podcast bell so Rob uh, conclusions and score so what's your overall thoughts of Terror of the Autons and what would you give it as a score oh um, it's not one that I constantly revisit when I was when I was younger um, I don't think I've seen it until quite late on as well um it's not one i've revisited since the dvds came out um i don't know why maybe just because it wasn't one i was kind of raised on Mm. (laughs) um but no it's good um it crams a lot in much like the crash dummies film (laughs) which which kind of um 
fleshes out all the characters and the plot and the pace within 22 minutes. This does it well over four 25-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. A lot's established. Um, we we understand who Joe is, who the master is, and um, we have the return of a villain. So in a rare circumstance, we get a, a sequel kind of story, mm-hmm. which is always good. Um, yeah, I rate this story good. Jolly good. Um, with me, it's a, it's a bit different. It has been a story that I've, I've always returned to and I've been very familiar with it. In fact, it was, if you don't include Dimensions in Time, uh, this was my third Doctor Who story. Uh, so the first were Planet of the Daleks, The Green Death, and then um, I remember being in Woolworths with my mum and Gran, and my Gran bought me the first of many uh, Doctor Who videos. And the first two... Uh, were Terror of the Autons and Day of the Daleks because I I remember watching uh, the documentary Thirty Years in the TARDIS and the only thing that I, that stuck with me was the clip of the the dummies coming alive in the shop window. Oh yeah, and I, I went right. I want to see that story. So uh, someone my grand said, "Well, I'll buy you a Doctor Who video." And I went, "Well, Day of the Daleks." And she went, "I'll buy you another one." I was like, "All right, okay, great." Uh, I went, "I went well. I want the one with the I want the one with the dummies in." Pick Terror of the Autons up and. And it was like, is that the one with the dummies? And it's like, yeah, yeah, look, it's got dummies. I was like, okay, great. So I got that home. I remember watching it and waiting for that moment of when the shop window dummies were coming alive. And obviously that oh. never happened because that's spearhead from space, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and I went, oh, it must be in the wrong story. But I remember, even though it wasn't the story I was expecting and I was waiting for that moment, I wasn't disappointed because I thought that was still bloody good. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, got some good cliffhangers. Yeah, fantastic cliffhangers. And, uh, I think we all agree. In fact, one of our listeners even said it as well. The the, the cliffhanger to episode two in particular, I think, is one of the best uh, with the policeman. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, really love the story. Um, I really because it's been a while since I I really really enjoyed it more than ever on the uh, on this occasion. Um, oh, that's good. Which yeah yeah, I just really enjoy. I just relished it uh, more than I ever had before. Um, so I love the story, so obviously I think it's good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I enjoyed it as well. I think we've had um, we've kind of had a week off, so I had a bit more time to kind of just relax and enjoy it, mm-hmm. rather than like find the time to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Shall we see what the the listeners thought? Oh yes, the poll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The poll. Yeah. Um, so we did ask on Twitter, how would you rate Terror of the Autons? Um, 80% good, 20% average. Yeah, nobody said bad. Oh, that's good. Well, ne- do you know what we're doing next week? I think I've got a vague idea. you got a rough idea. Uh, next week, we are joined by nice. Harold from the Who Can Convince You podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll be our first legitimate guest on the show. Um, we've had we've had voice clips from people before um, but you know this this is the first kind of guest performance we'll have uh, we were in we were on his show with Luke mm-hmm. a few weeks back and we're going to be talking about a favorite of his which is planet of the Daleks yes I'm looking forward to that as I said a few moments ago planet of the Daleks has a special place in my heart because it was the very first Doctor Who story I ever watched Um mm. 
Yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. Yeah, and I, I get the impression he uh, he really, really loves that story. So it's, it should be a good one. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I think that's it for today. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Thanks very much uh, for listening. And yes, uh, tune in uh, to our next podcast, where, as Rob said, we will be discussing uh, with our very first special guest, Planet of the Daleks. Yeah. So um, bye from us, the best dummies in the business. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. The tide is cloister bell. Imminent disaster. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.